Let's open our Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 19. I'm so excited about being in this chapter. Chapters 1 to 3 were the description of the seven churches. Chapters 4 through 18 are the events of the seven-year tribulation. So we have been through the seven-year tribulation already in our study. Now the theme changes to a glorious theme, the second coming of our Savior. This is not the rapture. That probably took place between chapter 3 and chapter 4. But the return, his coming in glory, when Jesus comes to defeat his enemies and rule in righteousness, and then the millennial rule will be in chapter 20. John Walvoord writes, beginning in chapter 19, there is a noticeable change. The great tribulation is now coming to its end, and the spotlight focuses on heaven and the second coming of Christ. For the saints and angels, it is a time of rejoicing and victory. So we're in Revelation chapter 19, and as I was going through this week, I was planning on covering the whole thing. In fact, uh, that was what the title was, the four alleluias and the second coming of Christ. Well, we're just going to cover verses 1 through 10 tonight. There's so much material here. The four alleluias, and we'll add the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's also in these verses, in verses 1 through 10. And then we'll get to the second coming of Christ the next time we're in the book of Revelation, verses 11 through 16, unless the rapture comes first. And then we'll just already know what we should know when we get to heaven. Let's read verses 1 through 4. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke arose, arose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Now let's look, first of all, at the context and the timeline of the book of Revelation. When did this place take place? We start with those first opening words in verse 1, after these things. Now you think back about the last two chapters that we've just been in, chapter 17 and 18, talking about Babylon. The city of Babylon was finally destroyed. And as we think about that, the merchants that were, that were mourning the, the city of Babylon, the kings that were mourning, uh, and, and they were weeping because the, the greatness of Babylon is gone and shall be found no more at all. Now in chapter 17, it's the destruction of religious Babylon that's described, the one world religion. Chapter 18, political Babylon is destroyed, the one world government. Babylon, that city that has been represented throughout history as a man-centered community of religious and commercial trade, not only included, if you think back in, in chapter 18, not only included great wealth and great wickedness, but also the trading in the souls of men. It's at the end of all the list of all the merchandise that went through that city, also sold the souls of men. As a review, Babylon began when Nimrod established the city of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. God confused the languages of those that were building a name for themselves. 
Later, it was called Babylon. It stood as an ancient city in the lower Euphrates River in South Mesopotamia, an area that's now Iraq. Babylon was the capital of Babylonia. The ruins are still there. Now, it's 55 miles just south of Baghdad. I don't recommend you try to go and visit. It became the place where God punished the children of Israel for their idolatry. They were taken away as captives into the uh, into Babylon for 70 years, 2 Chronicles 26, uh, 36, 21. In 539 B.C., Belshazzar called Daniel in, and he wanted to have Daniel explain the handwriting on the wall. And in that same night, the king was slain and the kingdom was divided. And that is the beginning of Daniel's image, where Persia, the head of gold, was destroyed, and now the silver arms and chest of sil- uh, uh, were, were uh, representing Medo-Persia. Later, the torso of brass, the Grecian Empire, came along, and then finally, the iron legs and feet of Rome, the Roman Empire. The concept of Babylon was anti-Christian, was anti-God, and it culminates under the, the ruler and the, the, the headship and the ruling of the Antichrist. And while the kings and merchants mourned the loss of that great city, do you remember how chapter 18 ended? The residents of heaven were rejoicing. Verse 20 of chapter 18, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her, because, verse 24, in her, in Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. The wickedness of Babylon had resulted in the slaying of God's servants, both from the Old Testament, the prophets, the New Testaments, the apostles, and of the saints in the church age who have been martyred. No wonder heaven rejoiced. We said in our study of chapter 18 that heaven's rejoicing would have included all those who reside in heaven, God, his angels, his saints. We come now in chapter 19 to the first Alleluia. Now after these things, after Babylon is destroyed, John tells us who is rejoicing or voicing this praise. Verse 1, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. In Revelation 7, verse 9, there was also a great multitude which cried with a loud voice. Let me read that again. In Revelation 7, after this I beheld. And lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. These, in Revelation chapter 7, were saints who were martyred during the tribulation period. Revelation 7, 13, one of the elders asked who they were and where did they come from? And I said unto him, verse 14, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So that was in chapter 7, that great voice. Now there are more. This voice is combined with praise and it's the voice of all the saints of all ages. 
Dr. Custer writes, it is significant that the scene of the second coming begins with the celestial praise to God. Remember, this is uh, in the, the second half of chapter 19. We're going to talk about the second coming, and you can look ahead, verse 11, if you want. But he's saying, uh, this is, uh, the, the, that second coming, that scene, begins with the celestial praise to God. The time has finally come in which God will take over the rebellious world and rule in sovereign power. What a day that's going to be. What are they saying? They're saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Now the word Alleluia here is spelled differently than what we're used to seeing it, isn't it? We generally have an H at the beginning and it's Hallelujah. It's from the word Hebrew word, a combination of Hallel, which means to praise or to give glory, and then Yah, a contraction of the name Yahweh or Jehovah. In the Old Testament, the word hallelujah is only found in the Psalms, and only in Psalms 104 to 150. It's only found four times in the New Testament. All four times are here in chapter 19, verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. We've already read three of them. That is the words praise Jehovah, they are transliterated, that is, in the Greek language, they use their alphabet to spell the Hebrew sounds of hallelujah. And so that's why we have alleluia spelled differently here. Spelling is different, but the wording and the, the meaning is the same as the Old Testament, praise to Jehovah. We sang tonight in heavenly sunlight that word hallelujah. I am rejoicing, singing his praises. So this is the original Hallelujah Chorus in the book of Revelation. It was written before Handel's Messiah. They add to the praise salvation, glory, honor, and power. This is praise unto the Lord our God. Why salvation? Because he's the one who wrought our salvation. He made it possible. Glory, he's the one who deserves all of our honor and glory and praise. Honor, he's the one who is highly valued. Power, he is the almighty God. Why were they praising Jehovah? There are two reasons given in verse 2. Because, first of all, he is righteous. For true and righteous are his judgments. Finally, the judgment of God has come. And his judgment is true. It is righteous. It is just. There are no plea deals. There are no errors in charges of guilt. There, the punishment is, is just. It is exactly what is deserved. Second reason they're praising Jehovah, not only because he is righteous, but because the great harlot Babylon is unrighteous and has been judged. For he that judgeth the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. The immoral woman was mentioned in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4. She was the one world apostate religion. She stood for that church. She's been, she was seen as riding upon a beast and that beast was the kingdom, the one world empire. She was responsible for killing the Lord's servants by her own hand. 
And now she is judged by God. And it says, avenged of the blood of his servants. The second alleluia is found at the beginning of verse 3. And again they said, alleluia. They're praising Jehovah because of the punishment that has come. They're telling him that he is righteous in his judgment. Sin deserves punishment. And what God does is always right. Now when you talk to someone today about their sin and about God taking their punishment on on himself, they don't like to think about their sin having a, a conclusion, having a result. They don't want to think that they're responsible for their sin and that their, their accountability will bring them before the throne of God. Our sin deserves punishment. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. All of us, born as sinners, deserve justly to be punished for that sin. God's justice demands that sin must be punished. But then we come to God's grace. And God's grace is seen that he provided a a way of redemption, a plan of salvation. God's love is seen that he provided that redemption through the death of his own son. God's patience is his goodness shown in withholding judgment that's deserved over a long period of time. God's patience. That's the age we're in now. One day, patience, the patience of God, will give way to justice, to punishment. All sin must be punished. In the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 4, it says that scoffers will come in the last days, people who are mocking Scripture. And they're asking a question, where is the promise of his coming? In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, Peter writes, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day, as one day. That is, time to God is different than it is to us. And so he's been patient for all these years. And then we come to verses 9 and 10. And here's the answer. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But, 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It's not talking about the day of the Lord of the rapture. It's talking about the judgment that God will send to punish this world's sins. Walvard, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, writes of this passage in 2 Peter, the day of the Lord includes the tribulation, the millennium, the great white throne judgment, and the destruction of the present heavens and earth. And the great, at the great white throne, after the millennium, ungodly men, that is the wicked dead, will be judged and then thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. This, as Peter wrote, will be their day of judgment and destruction. 
After they're cast into fire, the heavens and the earth will be destroyed by fire. Back in Revelation chapter 19, verse 3, the second half of verse 3, the smoke of the destruction of Babylon is described as rising up forever and ever. I mentioned the difference between the, world, the words Ion and cosmos recently. Cosmos is the world, the material world, and the people here. For God so loved the world. Ion has to do with age. And this, this translation, forever and ever, is Ion, Ion. That is, into the ages and ages. This smoke will rise up forever. With regard to this eternal smoke and flame, Custer mentions Isaiah's prophecy and says, In the day of the Lord's vengeance, the smoke of the land of Idumea shall go up forever. Let me read that prophecy in Isaiah 34, verses 8 through 10. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone. And the land shall become burning pitch, and it shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever. From the generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. And then Custer writes, This is a clear anticipation of hell, the lake of fire, with its eternal smoke of torment. Then he quotes the warning of Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Jesus taught that hell was a literal place. This is the picture, the description of the eternal fire, the ion into ion, into the ages, the smoke of the torment of Babylon. Jesus taught about a literal, literal place called hell. He described it in detail. He warned others about it. He says that it's a place of eternal torment, Luke 16, 23. A place of unquenchable fire, Mark 9, 43. Where the worm dies not, Mark 9, 48. Where people will gnash their teeth in anguish, Matthew 13, 42. And from there, uh, from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones, Luke 16, 19 through 31. Jesus calls hell a place of outer darkness, Matthew 25, 30, comparing it to Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, Matthew 10, 28. The Valley of Hinnom is south of the city of the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and it's where that the, the people would dump their trash and their garbage, and there would be continual burning. And so uh, Gehenna, the, uh, a description of hell is that eternal punishment, the eternal garbage dump of the universe. Hell is a real place. The third hallelujah is in verse 4. And 24 elders and four beasts join in the praise. Four and 20 elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. 24 elders and four beasts we saw around the throne of God all the way back in chapter 4. Now they're joining their voices with all the saints of all ages in praise to God. Back in chapter 4, we said that the 24 elders were probably human beings who represented all of Israel and the church. 
12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles in the church, and these 24 elders representative of Old and New Testament time altogether. Some think they're angels. It's not a huge point of difference. We come to verse 5, and this is the beginning of the paragraph, verses uh, 5 through 10, that tells us about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The fourth alleluia and the marriage supper of the Lamb. A voice tells God's servants to praise him and to fear him. Let's read verse 5 together. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye servants of his, and ye that fear him, both small and great. I find this very interesting. Here is a command to praise God. And they're never... They never tire of praising God. The voice came out of or from the throne. Initial thought, could this be God giving this command to praise him? No, because it says praise our God. Walford says this is probably the voice of one of the angels. The strongest argument that I can see that this is uh, not God's voice is the refusal of worship from one who is talking to John in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. It'll be our last verse in our text tonight, but go ahead and look. God God says, or this, this person says, worship God, don't worship me, worship God only. God never refuses worship, so this voice can't be God's. Angels and men do refuse worship. Why? Because we know God alone is worthy of worship and praise. Who's told to praise our God? All ye his servants. All ye that fear him, both small and great. That means young and old, well-known or little-known. New believers or people who have walked with the Lord in fellowship with him for years. All are told to praise God. I'm going to ask Fawn and Gary to come to the instruments while I finish this next point, and we're going to sing something. It won't be the final song. We'll sing, and then we'll have some more message, okay? You'll have that warning. But Custer says, It is a convicting thought to note how frequently the inhabitants of heaven return to the worship and praise of God, and how rare such worship is on earth even among true believers. And when he said it was convicting, I was convicted. Why is it that when we look at heaven, there's praising God continually, and we look at earth, and we say no one's doing that, or very few are. And if so, it's just for a short amount of time. He says, a direct command, that is, this voice said, praise God, him and fear him, or all ye who are servants of his, praise him. The direct command should certainly move believers, willing servants of God, to a greater praise and worship of God in their private devotions and in their public worship. Whether they are important or unimportant in the world's eyes makes no difference. Remember the end of verse 5, both small and great. And so I'd ask you, If you would turn to this song, Ye Servants of God, it's number 60. I think we have the words up here. We're going to sing it to the tune, O Worship the King. 
Uh, that's a more familiar tune, perhaps. We're going to sing all four verses of Ye Servants of God. And could I ask you to stand as we sing in praise to God tonight and for this song, Ye Servants of God. seated. We'll continue. We're in verse 6, Revelation chapter 19, and now another voice, as loud as thundering waters, joins the fourth and final hallelujah. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, the reason for the praise is because the Lord omnipotent reigneth. This is the introduction to the coming king, the second coming again, recorded in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. We'll see in chapter 19 and verse 16, when Jesus returns, he will have on his vesture and on his thigh, probably something that goes from shoulder to thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So chapter 20, he'll be coming and ruling in the millennial kingdom as king of kings. And we come to the marriage of the lamb in verses 7 through 9. Marriages are joyful occasions. In chapter 7, verse 8, it's, uh, chapter 19, 7a, the, the verse starts, Let us be glad and rejoice. You know, here on earth, when... A man and a woman pledge their love to each other. It's always exciting to come and hear them say their vows in front of the church. 
But there's going to be a marriage ahead that's more joyous than any that we have ever been to in this earth. The Bible says that we are espoused to Jesus Christ. And the great thing about it is God is making all the arrangements. You fathers of brides know what that costs, right? This feast will take place after the Bema, after the judgment seat of Christ, close to the end of the tribulation and before the millennium. The tribulation will end with the Battle of Armageddon, Revelation 17, verses 12 through 14. Babylon destroyed in Revelation 18. Then the marriage of Christ takes place in Revelation 19.1 when we read those, those first words, and after these things. Honor is to be given to the one who invited us to be his bride. Verse 7, the second half. And give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. It's called the marriage of the Lamb. Why? Well, Christ is the Lamb of God. In John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. It's his marriage. It's the marriage of the Lamb. Who's the bride? We're always standing up to look and see who comes through the door at the wedding in her beauty. The bride here is the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, we find written, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Hebrews 12, 23, To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now I want to read uh, Schofield's notes on this, on this verse in Hebrews 12, uh, 23. The true church, composed of the whole number of regenerate persons from Pentecost to the first resurrection, united together unto Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is the body of Christ of which he is the head. As such, it is a holy temple for the habitation of God through the Spirit. It is one flesh with Christ and espoused to him as a chaste virgin to one husband. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a part of the bride of Christ. Notice in verse 7 at the very end, the bride makes herself ready, and his wife hath made herself ready. The time has now come. The marriage will be complete. She's arrayed in fine linen, verse 8, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now, in this verse, verse 8, that word righteousness is in the plural. It's righteousnesses of the saints. The wedding gown is made up of the righteousnesses, the righteous works of the saints. Now, some will argue. Now, the Bible says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I don't want to go to a wedding like that, do you? <laughs> yes, when it comes to meriting salvation, that's true. Our righteousness won't merit anything. But here's an amazing result of salvation. I mentioned last Wednesday night when I talked about worldliness, Second uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, 
teaching us that denying ungodliness or unrighteousness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And so God's grace that saves us teaches us how to live. We're saved by grace, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. All of his holiness imputed to our record Sins are gone. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. After salvation, we're to do right. And that can only happen when the Holy Spirit of God moves within us to obey his word only with the ability that God gives us to do what is right. And so those are the, righteousness de- the righteous deeds of the saints that God is able to accomplish through us, through his righteousness. Paul Benware, in a book, Understanding the End Time Prophecies, writes, The garments represent rewards. The fact that the bride is wearing her beautiful garments indicates that she has already received her rewards for her deeds of righteousness. The judgment seat of Christ, therefore, must take place before the second coming and after the church is taken to heaven by the Lord Jesus. Now we come to verse 19, and John is told to write, Blessed, happy are they who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. In this last verse, we mentioned it before, John is corrected for worshiping the one talking to him. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Just an interesting note in this text. We are told only to worship God. There are many people who worship angels. They read about them. They follow them. They name them. We're not to worship angels. Why? They are created beings. We are told to worship only God. Also note, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The last phrase in verse 10. The angel said, I am of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. He's already talked about, he is the one who is giving testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is giving witness to him. So he's a witness, just as we are witnesses, of who Jesus is. So the spirit of prophecy, the true spirit of prophecy, is when we give an accurate testimony of who Jesus is. We don't glorify man or angels. We give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we'll have our closing hymn. 606, the sands of time are sinking. And will you commit to worshiping Christ more on earth? They're worshiping him. We will worship him all the time, forever, in eternity. Let's get into practice now. Let's live lives that are always singing praises to God in our devotions, in our churches, as you're driving down the road. Give praise to God. Commit to worshiping Christ more. And then will you ask the Lord to help you to send righteous deeds ahead that he does through you so that 
You will be wearing those righteous deeds that God has allowed us to do for him. And will you look with anticipation on being forever with the Lord, the one whom we love. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful that it tells us what's ahead. And I pray that as we've read this passage tonight, that our hearts would be convicted about the lack of praise that we give to you. And that we would go from this place singing your praises for eternity, beginning now. Help us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That those righteous deeds will be evident when we go away from that Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, that there was something left when the the fires tried it and the wood, hay, and stubble will burn up. May those gold and silver and precious stones resound to your glory because you're responsible for the, any goodness that comes through our, our hands. And so now help us to look with anticipation to that time when we'll be forever with your Lord, with our Lord, the one who died for us, the one who will be our espoused groom forever and ever. May we be faithful to you now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.